This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Father, we are so grateful for your word and the fact that you have not left us without witness, but you have testified of your character, of your great hope that you have in your Son, and that you have not left us as orphans, but you have poured out your Spirit. And as we just sang, oh, may the Spirit of God come and fill the preaching of the Word so that we are more like our Savior Jesus. Give us a passion for your holiness we want to be like you we want to be fit for your presence and we know that we fail and we fall and that we are just frail humanity but you know our frame you know that we're but dust and you are gracious and compassionate and you make up our lack you fill our every need you supply the very thing that you demand And all we can say is thank you. And all we can do is respond in worship. And so, Father, may we hear these words this morning and may your people be encouraged. And may we be fit tools in your hands to tell a lost world that there is great hope in a Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are in the book of Numbers this morning and we're heading to the promised land. And so far in the Pentateuch, what we've seen is that God is the God who speaks. He speaks in creation. He speaks to His people. He's the God who saves and delivers. He brought His people out of Egypt in the Exodus and led them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, providing manna for them for 40 years. He's the God who is reliable. He turns a family into a nation and keeps His promises. And all of His promises are yes and amen. He's also the God who rules and reigns and He's in the midst of His people and He's sovereign and He gives laws and He expects to be worshipped. And we hear His name in the Pentateuch. He's the gracious and compassionate one who is abounding in loving kindness, this wonderful Hebrew word has said, and in faithfulness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And what we heard in the the very first pages of Genesis is that God made a promise to Abraham. And what we see in the pages that follow, and especially in the book of Numbers, is that his promises will not be thwarted by human disobedience. This is incredibly important for us because the misconception that we often have in our lives is that we have to somehow do our part so that God can do his part. That somehow we got to clean ourselves up and we got to we got to work with God here. I mean, he's gone a long way. After all, he gave his son. I mean, couldn't you just do a little bit? That is antithetical to the gospel. That is the very opposite of what the gospel proclaims. In fact, the gospel says, you can't do it. You know what you bring to this? Your mess, your sin, your brokenness. And you know what God gives you? He gives you healing. He gives you forgiveness. He restores your soul. He brings about reconciliation so that you're no longer an enemy of God. He unites you with His Son and with Him gives you everything else in heaven and earth. And we obtain this not by our works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promises of God concerning His Messiah, who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul in Galatians 3 says, guess what? The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. And here we see in the book of Numbers that this is exactly what's going on the second generation hearing this as Moses is speaking to them they would have realized that their only ultimate hope for a change of their heart their stiff-neckedness their rebelliousness 
is not in doing more, is not in keeping the law, but rather is in a descendant of Abraham who's the Messiah who will bring about a new covenant by the Spirit, which means a new heart. And we haven't got there yet, but that's Deuteronomy 30. I will circumcise your hearts so that you will obey me. Well, this morning is a delightfully pleasing message to preach to you all. We got through the holiness of God last week, and this morning the message is all about hope. And it's about hope for real sinners. And if you're like me, you're a real sinner. But you know, when we come to church, we don't really want to talk about our sin. We want to play it down like, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or I'm not, you know, I don't want to bother you with my troubles. My things are not that bad. No, we're bad. We're broken and ruined by the fall. And some of you this morning, you might be coming and you might barely be holding it together. And you've painted on a smile. You've come because you know you need to be here. You know, this is where the words of life are, is in the Word of God. But you're calling from a place of deep sorrow and brokenness. And it's all you can do to get here. Well, I have something to tell you this morning is that there's a God who is faithful to keep His promises and He's God of all hope. And not a God of pipe dreams, not a God of wishful thinking. He's a God who, who will make His promises true in your life, who will be faithful to you so that your hope is an earnest expectation that what He says He will do, He will accomplish. You can bank your whole life on it and He will never disappoint you. He will never fail you. He will never let you go. That's the message this morning in the book of Numbers. So, it breaks up really nicely. Chapters 1 to 10, we're going to begin with hope in the character of God. And in chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, in the first day of the second month, in the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. And so we see this is, he's speaking to the second generation, but he's telling the story of the first generation. That they came out of Egypt and now they're numbered for war. They're going to take the promised land. And the purpose of the numbering is for the armies. Of course, today, you know, you might find some good baby names in this list here. Anybody uh, expecting soon? There's some, there's some good ones there. There's some difficult ones to pronounce. Now, what's amazing is this book of Numbers and the, the counting and the census of the, the people of, of God for war we see this brought up again, and, I, and, and the reason I'm bringing it up is Revelation 7 and 14, you have these 144,000, uh, 12,000 from every tribe, and adding up to 144,000. And, and I don't want to get into the whole interpretation of the book of Revelation, but in the book of Revelation, the same thing was going on. The people of God were being numbered for war. And what I will say about chapter 7 in chapter 14, is that the 144,000 that are in chapter 7 are still there in chapter 14. So not one is lost, and they're all with the Messiah, and Christ is the victor. And what we see in that is that if the war was over tomorrow, the party would be in chapter 4 of Revelation on Mount Zion, where all of the army is celebrating with the Messiah. And so what we have here is we have God's pattern of numbering his people for the purposes of of war. And then over in chapter 3, you see God setting apart the Levites, verses 11 to 13, from among the people of Israel. Instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel, the Levites shall be mine. So he's, he replaces formally the firstborn, which was the tenth plague. All the firstborn are dedicated to the Lord and are mine. And he says, now the Levites are mine. They're going to be my priesthood. And he says, they're going to be the ones who were set aside, not for war, but to be my priests among the people. And because of this, chapters 1 to 4, Israel is not only arranged for war, they're arranged for worship. God is in their midst, in the center. 
Three nations on the west, three on the east, three on the north, three on the south. No accident that Judah's listed first because the Messiah is going to come from Judah. And this formation is again seen in Revelation 21 where you have the 12 tribes mentioned and you have the new Jerusalem mentioned. And in the center, there is no temple, but the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And what we see in Revelation 21 is that the battle is finally done. And all of redemptive history, we don't have time to go through it. But from this day all the way to the end, this is what God is accomplishing. God is going to give victory to his people. He is in their midst. The battle's going to be won, and we are going to worship around his throne forever and ever because the whole earth will become his temple as we've seen. So the armies of God are arranged around the throne of God, chapters one to four. And the people of God are blessed through the rule of God in chapters five and six in Numbers. Now in chapter five, verse six, you have God, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse five, speak to the people of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord. And that person realizes guilt on and on. I'm bringing up this verse because we see a definition for sin here. What are they doing? They're committing sin by breaking faith with the Lord. So what we see is a definition of sin that is equivalent to unbelief. They're not putting faith in the Lord. They're choosing not to believe, unbelief. Not only that, it would be very tempting to think that throughout the Pentateuch that sins are just simply breaking God's law. It's so much more than that. Sin is not just breaking God's law. It's offending his person because his law reflects his character. And so Israel was to hope in the character of God and their very sinning betrays the fact that they were exhibiting unbelief in God and not hoping in God, in his character and his promises. And so they were, as God says here, breaking faith with Yahweh. Now, in chapter five, there's this case of a jealous husband and we don't have time to read through it. Uh, we used to jokingly quote verse 22 as a you know, life verse. Uh, you can laugh about that uh, taken out of context. But in chapter 5, the writer doesn't seem to be interested in the details of the case, but is more concerned about the larger lesson. God is personally involved in the restitution for the sin of the nation. Look at verse 26. The priest shall take a handful of of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar. And afterwards she'll make the woman drink the water. And when he's made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among the people. Now, if you drink water mixed with ashes, this doesn't normally happen. So what's... What's going on here? God is going to intervene in this judgment. It's ultimately his judgment upon the sin. He's intimately involved. He's ruling and reigning in the midst of his people. And we know from Hebrews that this is true for us today too. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And he chastens them. And sometimes we're sick, according to James, because we've sinned. Now we know from the book of Job that sometimes we're sick and ill not because of sin but because of the trials of God for our character and for our good. And so we don't want to blame all of our sickness and illness on sin but yet we see here God is intimately involved in ruling his people in chapters 5 and 6. And then you have in chapter 6 this Nazarite vow, this taking of a special holy status that actually the reason it's given is it shows that Yeah, the Levites were set aside in chapter 5, but anyone could take on this vow. It was voluntary, it was personal, it was public. After all, everyone could recognize a long-haired person. It was costly, and it was usually temporary. So this setting aside the Levites to be God's people did not exclude someone from devoting themselves to the Lord. 
And then in chapter 6, we see, though, the Nazarites aren't given the central task of being a priesthood. The priests are. And they're going to be the source of blessing for the people in the midst of the people. And he says, turn over to verse 22 of chapter 6. This will be very familiar to you. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So here you see the function of the priesthood, and God gives it in the form of a benediction, but he explains it. He says, when the priests do their duty and pronounce a benediction upon the people, I will bless them. I will do what I say I'm going to do. And then in chapters 7 to 10, the companies of God are led by the presence of God in their midst. Now, again, Judah leads in the list of giving, verses 12 to 17. And we're not going to go through all of this in detail, but turn over to chapter 7, verse 89. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Now in Exodus 25, 22, God had promised to speak with Moses from the mercy seat. And here the promise is finally fulfilled after the dedication of the altar. And make no mistake, this idea of calling the, the Ark of the Covenant and the top of it the mercy seat, this was an act of mercy. Though Moses was the mediator for the people, though he was God's representative, he wasn't the Messiah. He was full of sin. And yet God spoke to him. God's present in his house. In fact, chapter 8 the lamps are lit, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 9, they're celebrating the feasts and the Passover in particular. And God wants His people to draw near to Him, and He's prepared a way. So now, in the history of the people, it's happening. The tabernacle's built, God's home, He speaks to Moses, fulfilling His promise, He lights the lamps, He puts bread on the table, He welcomes the people in, and the first Passover is celebrated in the tabernacle. Chapter 9, remember, it was not meant to push the people of God out. It was meant to give them a means of drawing near to this holy, righteous one. Now turn over to chapter 9. It's fascinating, <coughs> kind of back to our discussion of clean and unclean laws last week. Verse 6, <coughs> and there were certain men who were unclean, through touching a dead body, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day, and those men said to him, We are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? So here we have these clean and unclean laws. They had touched a dead body. We don't know the reason why, but now because they're designated unclean, they can't come before the Lord in worship. And they're saying, what do we do? Why can't we come? So Moses says, wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Verse 8, verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break any of its bones according to all the statute for the Passover. They shall keep it. So they were given an exemption. And it shows that God's laws are not arbitrary or unreasonable. So again, back to our discussion last week, the unclean laws were not um, meant to show the sin of the people, but to show the holiness of God in the corporate gathering. And the clean laws were meant to be a means by which the people could draw near to God corporately. And then in chapter 
9, verse 15, all the way over to chapter 10, verse 33, we see this picture of God leading His people with His presence. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And in chapter 10, verse 33 to 36, So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And so the people, as they began to do this, this is the first generation being narrated, they had great hope in God and His character. He's the gracious and compassionate one that revealed Himself to Moses who made a way for them to draw near in the tabernacle to the very presence of the one who was in the center of their camp in their midst, who was going before them, who was leading the way, who was causing their enemies to flee, and who would bless them as he was in their presence. This is good news for the people that the one who delivered them out of Egypt is the one who's still with them. You see, and this is just as hopeful for us this morning, beloved, because what we have is we have the presence of God not just with us, but in us in the new covenant. You remember Jesus' conversation with his disciples? He said, if I go away, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. I'm gonna send another comforter. And this comforter who is the Holy Spirit, he's not just going to be with you, he's going to be in you. Oh, and it's tied to this imagery of temple, isn't it? As we've seen before. That God has now made his people to be the temple of God, the place where his glory dwells, his manifest presence dwells. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter. Paul writes about this in Ephesians. That we are being built into a spiritual house made of spiritual stones, Christ himself being the cornerstone, so that we would be a fit place for the Holy Spirit to dwell um, in us. And, and as I mentioned before, if we want to meet with God, we don't go to Jerusalem anymore. Where do we come? We come to the church of the living God. We come here. If people want to see God, they see God in us. His manifest presence is in us, and what does Jesus say? They will know you are Christians by the love you have for one another. And so life together as the church of God manifesting the character of God to a lost world desperately in need of Jesus. This is our mission. This is our calling. We're to be a city on a hill. We're to be light in the darkness. We're to be ambassadors pleading with people, be reconciled to God. Oh, there's great hope in his character, isn't there? He keeps his promises. He's compassionate and gracious to the undeserving, to us. He doesn't cast us out. He made a way to fulfill the righteous requirement of his character, his holiness that we sang about, that's manifested in the tabernacle. He provided a system and a way. In the old covenant, it was the animals. It was the priesthood. In the new covenant, it's the Lord Jesus Christ of which all those were shadows and types. And we saw it last week. Once for all, he entered into the holy place, not on earth, but in the heavens, not made with hands, there to appear in the presence of God for us, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He offered it up to God, not over and over and over again, but once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, the book of Hebrews tells us. So therefore, he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, to the uttermost. Oh, have great hope this morning. You cannot out the grace of God, beloved. Whatever you're going through, whatever sin you're harboring and hiding, that you're just thinking, man, if people really knew, man, I would be out of the church. And if God really held me accountable, I'd be out of his kingdom. Oh, cling to Jesus. Repent of it. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, James says. There's great healing in confession. Turn from it. Fall on the character and the mercy and the grace of this God who forgives sinners and separates their sin as far as the east is from the west. 
Hope in the character of God. Well, hope in the midst of failure, verses, chapters 11 to 24. And in this narrative, in chapter 11, it becomes a turning point. Prior to this, yeah, there was a couple cases that went bad, but everything was going well for the first generation. But what we see is um, things go from bad to worse. Chapter 11, verse 1. People complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. It was a farmer's market in Egypt. <laughs> Locally grown, sustainable. And all they had was manna. Just this manna. Well, they complained. We know this story. We've all seen Veggie Tales if we have children. <laughs> they had selective memory. How in the world do they think that Egypt is better? Don't you remember? You're the first generation. You were the ones who they were killing your children and enslaving you and beating you. They had selective memory complaining, wanting to return to Egypt. And in doing so, what chapter 11 shows is they were rejecting the Lord. So he had revealed his character. He had revealed his presence. He had shown his gracious and compassionate nature. And they said, I don't want it. Wow. And we also see in chapter 11, and John Salehammer in his commentary says, the central purpose of this narrative appears to show the failure of Moses as the mediator of the people. Because Moses couldn't even mediate for them ultimately. And why? Why is this so important? Because there's going to come a better mediator who will not fail, the Lord Jesus. Well, it comes from the lips of Moses himself in verse 14. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me, he says. So even Moses knew I can't be their mediator. Well, God responds to Moses in this chapter by sending His Spirit upon 70 elders. And, and what's amazing about this is, you know, then people worry. Uh, Aaron and Miriam worry. Hey, Moses, you're getting undermined. You're the, you're the mediator. And what does Moses say in verse 29? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Well, Moses is a prophet. I didn't know if you knew that. And that verse is most definitely prophetic. Because we know in Acts chapter 2 that Peter says that the prophet Joel in 2.28 said that when the new covenant comes, all your sons and daughters will prophesy and all of them will dream dreams, and the Spirit of God will be upon all of them. And so what do we see here? This great anticipation of the new covenant by Moses himself saying, I can't be the mediator. The burden's too heavy for me. God graciously gives 70 elders the Spirit of God to help him lead, and then he says, oh, I wish it was on all the people. And Jesus, the greater Moses, the greater prophet, the greater mediator, he comes and that's exactly what he brings in. And that's exactly what Peter teaches in Acts chapter 2 in that very first sermon at Pentecost. Talk to me afterwards if you want to see even greater stuff about that. It's just fantastic to see what the Lord is doing, promising to send his spirit to bring about that which we can't do on our own. This is God's grace and his mercy. Well, in chapter 12... We see the failure of Miriam and Aaron. They oppose Moses. Now, I think it's fascinating that after Moses' weakness is shown that he's not the mediator, that then Miriam and Aaron basically undermine Moses' leadership and God vindicates him. 
saying he's not just a prophet, but also a priest and a king, and I speak to him face to face. And so it reminds me of John the Baptist. Do you remember when John the Baptist is having some doubts and, about his cousin? And he says, hey, um, disciples, go ask Jesus, are you the one or, or, or is there someone coming who's really the Messiah? And um, the crowd around Jesus, they, there must have been some grumbling or some suspicions that John the Baptist was, was not that great. And Jesus replies and says, hey, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I tell you, there's no one, no prophet greater than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. The least in the new covenant is greater than him. Isn't that incredible? This tracing out of the prophetic ministry and what it means and, and what the new covenant brings and the greatness and how superior the new is to the old. And it goes back to our conversation these past four weeks about Moses got it. Moses was comparing Abraham and himself, and he's saying the promise is better than the law because the law could never save, and the promise was going to send a hero, a Messiah, who was going to save and deliver. And so hope not in the law, but in the promise. And so the Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promises of God alone concerning his Messiah. They just didn't know who he was. We do. His name is Jesus. He was born of Mary. Fully God and fully man who lived a perfect life, qualified to be our substitute, going to the cross, paying the penalty of our sin, giving us his righteousness, not staying dead, but rising from the dead on the third day, now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning with the greatest authority at his right hand until all his enemies are put under his feet. And then he's coming back to get us. And he's going to make all things new. And we're going to be with him forever. And all of this shadow and foreshadowing and types and numbers in the Pentateuch are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. They're going to be seen in their majesty and their glory and their fullness when Christ returns again and all things are made new. This is our hope. And what we see in these chapters is a hope in the midst of failure because these people are judged. The leaders are judged. Moses is inadequate. Miriam's inadequate. Aaron's inadequate. The people are judged. Unbelief in chapters 13 and 14 at Kadesh Barnea. This is the famous 12 spies incident. And if you were a little kid in church, you even know the finger uh, movements, right? What was it? Ten saw bad, two saw good. Before they went out in chapter 13, they were told to remember verse 2, God's promise. Verse 22, God's faithfulness. Verse 27, God's generosity, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 30, God's power. But they were filled with unbelief. And in chapter 14, look at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? Their fear of the people in the land is characterized as unbelief. Again, Moses intercedes in chapter 14. And we see in verse 17, now please let the power of the Lord be as great as you promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So Moses intercedes by saying, God, this is who you are. You're the gracious and compassionate one. Would you have grace and compassion on these people who are unbelieving? The people are judged at the end of the chapter. They're going to live and die in the wilderness for 40 years, verse 33. And we see the immediate judgment, they're defeated in battle at the end of chapter 14. They try to go to war without the Lord's help in verse 42. Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. And they show their unbelief again in trying to gain the blessing of God without God. We're going to get the land. I know God promised, but he said he's not with us, but we're going to go take it anyway showed what they really wanted was the land and not God. It's kind of like, if you want to go to heaven, 
but you don't really like Jesus, heaven's not going to be really that great for you. Because heaven's all about Jesus. And in fact, the only reason heaven is heaven is because heaven is where God dwells. That's the very definition of heaven. And so heaven without God is not heaven. These people were filled with unbelief. And in chapters 15 to 24, it continues. The failure of the first generation is seen in chapters 15 to 20. Because of their unbelief in chapter 15, more laws are given. Korah rebels, saying everyone is holy, chapter 16. In other words, I'm a priest, you're a priest, everyone's a priest. We're all holy. We don't need to obey your laws. Well, we see that that's not the case. 24,000 are killed in Korah's rebellion. Their presumption to approach God any way they want. And Aaron, as high priest, intercedes at the end of the chapter. And then in chapter 17, God demonstrates his blessing and his calling of Aaron as high priest by causing his rod, his staff, to bud, to, to blossom. And God reminds the people of the importance of the priesthood in chapter 18 and then gives them the red heifer sacrifice in chapter 19 as an offering for sin, defilement, and death. And throughout these chapters, in spite of the people's failure, the focus for the covenant was the blessing of life, not the curse of death. God was still calling them to himself, giving them means by which they could draw near through the sacrifices, through the priesthood exemplified in Aaron, but the failure of the first generation is on display. And it culminates in chapter 20 in my mind because you see in chapter 20, verse 1, Miriam died there and was buried there. So Moses' sister, Miriam, one of the leaders, she dies in verse 1. Her brother Aaron, verse 29 of chapter 20, he dies when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished. All the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. He dies in the wilderness. And in chapter 20, verse 12, right smack dab in the middle of this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me. See, verse 11, Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice. And it was an action of unbelief. And God says, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. So Moses is cursed and said, you will not enter the promised land. Right in the middle of this, Miriam dying and Aaron dying. The unbelief of Moses and the failure of the people through the rest of the chapter to enter the promised land. It's as if the, the screen, you know, the curtain is setting at the end of chapter 20. And then it opens again to the next act in chapter 21 because we see the covenant faithfulness of God to the second generation in chapters 21 to 24. He's with them. Now we're into the second generation. Now they have victory in their war in battles at Arad and Sihon and Og. In chapters 22 to 24, Balaam comes along. That great prophet Balaam said with tongue firmly inserted in the cheek. See, Balaam, and this, why is this section here? So think about the bigger picture. First generation has failed. The leadership has died, except for Moses. He's cursed, can't enter the land. But now the second generation, of which this is being read to, is beginning to have victories. And then Balaam comes along. And here in this section, I think it's strategic because what Balaam prophesies is that God is faithful to keep his promise to Abraham. I'm going to show this to you. Balaam is hired to curse Israel, but he can only bless them instead. He can't curse them. And the blessing that he gives is tied to the promise to Abraham. So Balak, the guy who wanted to hire Balaam to keep Israel out of the land, um, he hires him, chapter 22, verse 6. Of course, the donkey is smarter than Balaam in verse 33. Now, in chapters 23 and 24, three times, Balak tries to get Balaam to curse Israel, and instead, each curse was turned into a blessing. Chapter 23, verse 8 says, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? That's the first one. The second one, chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie. In other words, he keeps his promises. He doesn't lie. 
And then in chapter 24, verse 7, their seed, their descendants, shall be in many waters. Well, what is that hearkening back to? All three of these things go back to Genesis 12 and God saying, I will bless you, not curse you. That I'm, I won't lie, I'll keep my promises and in your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed and your descendants, by the way, are gonna be like the stars in the heavens or the sand on the seashore. And Balaam basically rephrases and reiterates the promise of Abraham to the people. So this being put right in the Pentateuch where the second generation would hear it, right as they were achieving victories would have gave them great hope in the midst of the failure of their parents and their grandparents. That God is keeping his promises. Yes, there was consequences for sin. Yes, there was judgment. But he is not going to fail to keep his promises. And so chapters 25 to 36, this is the rest of the book. Hope in the promises of God. This generation that's listening lived their whole life in the wilderness. Most of them never lived in Egypt. They didn't see the sea crossing. They didn't see the deliverance. They knew the promises of God, but they had to hope in them by faith, just like we do. We didn't see Jesus. We didn't live with him. We hope in the promises of God by faith. This is what exactly why Moses included these sections at the end of the book of Numbers. What he tells them, this second generation, you are the God's people, God is in your midst, God fights for you, and God will give you the land and fulfill his promises. That's what the rest of the book says. So Israel is God's people, chapters 25 to 27. And because they're his people, God is a jealous God and he will not give his glory to another. So in chapter 25, an issue of idolatry comes up in the midst of the people. In fact, uh, a couple was committing immorality in front of Moses and the whole congregation in verse 6. And so Aaron, uh, rather Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, through his zeal for the Lord, kills the couple that's committing immorality and as a result received a covenant of perpetual priesthood in verse 13. So Aaron died, but his descendant has zeal for the Lord. Continuing on, chapter 26, God is still faithful. There, a census is taken and showed that all the previous generations died except for Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who saw good. They're going to get to go into the land. But I want to point out a couple biographical comments here. Chapter 26, verse 8, we read, And the sons of Palu, Eliab, the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram, these are the Dothan and Abiram chosen from the congregation, in case you were confused, who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died. So there's a narrative saying, hey, these two guys, by the way, in case you didn't know, they're descendants of Korah. Why is this important? Korah died for his rebellion, but his sons did not. It was grace. In fact, the sons of Korah wrote Psalm 42 and 44 and 45, 46 and 47, 48 and 49 and 84 and 85 and 87 and 88. Incredible. Numbers 26 verse 19, another commentary. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Ur and Onan died for their wickedness, but Judah's family survived. And of course, Verse 21, it says, um, And the sons of Perez were Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites of Hamul, the clan of the Hamulites. Well, Perez is the line through which the Messiah comes. Numbers 26, verse 33. Oh, this is beautiful. Now, Zelophehad, the sons of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. There's a baby name for you, huh? Zelophehad. The names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza. These are the clans of Manasseh and those listed at 52,700. And Zelophehad died for unbelief like his generation and he only had daughters and we're going to see the resolution here shortly so I'll, I'll let you wait on that one. 
But the census is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. His promise to Isaac, his promise to Jacob, I'm going to make you a great nation. What we see here is a great nation in the wilderness, God being faithful. Chapter 27, he judges on behalf of his people, granting inheritance to the daughters of Zelophehad. In chapter 27, he says, okay, your, your daughters, there are no sons, but you're still going to inherit the land. Also in chapter 27, though Moses has failed, Joshua is given as leader of the second generation, verses 12 to 23. Now God, of course, does so much more than just give Joshua. He's going to give Jesus. By the way, Jesus' name is Joshua. I don't know if you knew that, that Yeshua is, is Jesus' Hebrew name, which is Joshua, the same name as the one who succeeded Moses. Chapter 31, God then fights, I'm sorry, chapters 28 to 30, God is in the midst of his people. There's celebration of worship, chapter 28 and 29. It's been estimated that every year, 113 bulls, 1,086 lambs, a ton of flour, 1,000 bottles of oil and wine every year was used. And remember, this was not to exclude the people, but to draw them near. And don't forget, when they drew near to God, they threw a party. They celebrated. They had festivals. This was joyous time to celebrate the God who's in their midst. And we're New Covenant Christians. And when we gather, how much more should it be a time of happiness and celebration? We're going to have a meal together, as it were, symbolically anyway. I know it's not much of a meal, but we are taking the Lord's table. It is a celebration in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is coming back and he's throwing a party. And I don't want to see any of you with a frown on your face. Get off my lawn. God wants us to be happy in Christ. Blessed, makarios, joyful, happy are those who go enter into the kingdom of heaven. God fights for his people, chapter 31. And uh, it's a terrifying uh, picture here. They are to utterly wipe out the Midianites. And now we see in 31.3, it's an act of justice and not revenge. Genesis 18.25 is a helpful verse because in that midst of Sodom and Gomorrah where God wiped out a city, Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And these are difficult passages, and, and I don't want to just gloss over it, but I have to move quickly, but we know the character of our God, and He will always do what is right. And so if we don't understand something that's difficult to see about wiping out entire peoples, what we do know is that they were idolaters. We see throughout the book of Numbers that they were against the people of God, and we see this being a fulfillment of Abraham's promise again. Those who curse you, I will curse. But think about this, beloved. What we should take away from this is if God is for us, who could be against us? Our enemies are not the Midianites, but we wrestle against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. God will give His people the land in chapters 32 to 36. Reuben and Gad in chapter 32 settle in Gilead outside of the promised land, but they're given a, an exemption. Chapter 33, there's a retelling of the 40 years in the wilderness. Chapter 33 to 36, they finally get the land divided among the tribes in chapter 34. Cities are given to the Levites in chapter 35. And God in his wisdom spreads the Levitical cities out throughout all the land so that the people would have pastoral priestly care for them. Cities of refuge are given in chapter 35 designed to break the cycle of sin in the land. And God is going to dwell in the midst of His people in the land. And I want to end with this in chapter 36, verse 10. Zelophehad's daughters. You remember them? The daughters of Zelophehad, verse 10, chapter 36, did as the Lord commanded Moses. For Mala, Terza, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to the sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. God keeps his promises. And so we have hope. 
And Romans 8 tells us that our hope is this earnest expectation that he will do what he says. For in this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so brothers and sisters, have great hope this morning. God is not slow to keep his promises as some count slowness. But why is he waiting? He desires that none would perish, but all would come to him. And so Romans 5 Since we have been justified by faith, it's at the bottom of your notes, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope, hope in the glory of God. Well, what comes along with that? Well, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because the Father's love has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is the the blessing of the new covenant indwelling us. Everything that he had promised to Abraham and Moses and the people of God in the old covenant are fulfilled in Christ and we have it. So we have all the answers and we have all the hope. And as we come to the table on this side of the cross, we know that the Messiah has come and our hearts can draw near to the living God, not through a sacrificial system, not through clean and unclean, but boldly approaching the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we can find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Father, thank you.